This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the, the topic I chose to speak on this Sunday, the 6th of June, 2021, is known in Buddhism as final shelter or taking refuge in the three treasures the triple gem, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. During a Dharma talk, I would encourage you to maintain your Zazen practice, your Zazen mode of listening. In other words, um, I'll try and not to make this a university lecture. I don't want you tuning in just with your intellect, but um, just with a deep listening. So just maintaining your, your Zazen practice and just let my words fall as I speak. And then we'll have time at the end for discussion. For me, the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the three treasures is probably the easiest and simplest way of understanding or expressing Mahayana Buddhism or Buddhism or Zen Buddhism. All Buddhisms and all Buddhists take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. For those of you who are present, who are taking part in the Jukai ceremony during the Yarrawarra retreat at the end of the year, after uh, making repentance or atonement, which comes first, the first of the three precepts are taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So it's interesting they come in the sense of after the atonement, when we atone for any harm we may have caused towards ourselves or others in this lifetime or previous lifetimes. In other words, there's a sense of completeness as we take refuge. For those of you who are not taking the Jukai ceremony, in other words, the, uh, the Jukai ceremony being the ceremony which initiates one into being a Buddhist, then just look upon this notion of taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha in a way that makes meaning and sense for you. 
In fact, for all of us, we have to come to our own understanding and make it our own. What it means to us as we experience Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We have to personalize it. And, uh, and each one of us will have a, a slightly different understanding of it. And that's fine. Because whenever we come to speak about Zen and Zen Buddhism, it's always an approximation. Words are always an approximation. Sometimes the teaching is just clearer when you just listen to the birds or listen to the cars going past. So this was established by Dogen Zenji in the, uh, the Soto practice, taking the 16 uh, precepts in the, his first three being taking refuge. Just a little quote on the, uh, on the meaning of the Pali words. The expression take refuge is translated from the original Pali. And um, we, we in, our, uh, in our sutra book, we have the three refuges in Pali on uh, page one called T Sarana. Um, where we stay, um, I take refuge in the Buddha by saying Buddham Saranam Gachami. So Saranam Gachami, Sarana refers to a shelter, protection or sanctuary, some place of peace and safety. So Sarana, shelter, protection, sanctuary, some place of peace and safety. And Gachami or Gamana refers to the act of returning. The act of returning. <clears throat> so the English word refuge seems quite appropriate because it carries the sense of both place and going back or returning. It is synonymous with shelter and protection. It is anything to which you may turn for help or relief. The Latin root, refugia, means to flee or to fly back. When we take refuge in the triple treasure, we are flying back to our true home. That's a quote from a book by Rev Anderson a teacher in the Shunri Suzuki lineage from his book called Being Upright, Zen Meditation and the Bodhisattva Precepts. So refuge, refugees. There was something I wanted just to preface something here. Um, and I think that 
taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is really premised upon the assumption that we already have some relative sense of safety. So if one was fleeing from a country where literally one was fleeing for one's life, and if one became homeless and one's children were homeless in that process, and we did not experience any safety, then the first thing we need to focus on is providing ourselves and hopefully other people helping to provide us with some sense of refuge, as in refugee status, some place that we can call home where we and our family can feel safe. When Buddhism was first developing 2,500 years ago, the Sangha, I guess, was the place where one could literally turn to for refuge. In those days, there was a lot of poverty as there is now. Um, but we also have, now we have poverty in the midst of affluence. But um, the traditional Buddhism, where you had the Shakyamuni Buddha teaching and the community which formed around him, the Sangha, and teaching the Dharma teachings. We have the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha right from the beginning. And in those days, I think the Sangha did provide a kind of refuge for people who didn't literally have a home. And one took up homelessness as a kind of refuge where one would reside within a supportive community that survived on begging for food, literally, and uh, did not have any permanent shelters necessarily, and who may have wandered around as a community teaching the Dharma. But one did have the support of this community. I think in modern times or postmodern times here in the um, many of us live in relative affluence. So we don't necessarily go to refuge to escape from some sense of poverty. Although, of course, people in different countries experience extremes of violence and poverty. But for us, often, um, the refuge we're seeking is from something more like some kind of existential insecurity. And uh, so, as you would have all noticed in the West, our sanghas are primarily middle class. They're usually uh, people educated and have developed an interest at some point in their lives in Buddhism. Most of us in the sangha are not experiencing extremes of poverty or violence, hopefully. So that's one big difference between modern and traditional Buddhism, that many many sanghas in the West, you know, you will find very high middle class people living affluent lives. However, having said that, there is obviously a need in the West in the kinds of 
the need for refuge is different. It's a more, a more kind of existential sense of seeking refuge. And we know that there is a lot of isolation and loneliness that we experience in the West as well, in the midst of our affluence. When I hold the Buddha Dharma Sangha, I sort of like have a kind of triangle in my mind. You can envision that with the Buddha Dharma Sangha at the top, maybe. And little arrows, two arrows in each line, connecting them all together. So as I see it, the Buddha Dharma Sangha are really all about the, the interconnection between the three of them. They are interdependent, like all of reality. They are empty, like all of reality. Um, and they, uh, the best way to understand them is to see them as being interconnected all the time. The Buddhas, the Dharma and the Sangha all working together And we can see the, these, this, 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 this triple gem, um, this taking refuge, as either a boat which carries, carries us towards a safe place, a boat which transports us, or we can also see it as taking refuge right now, here in this moment. And I think in our Zen, Mahayana practice. There's, there's always these two aspects to our practice. There's the direct no path, which is right here, right now. And there's this notion of, of, of gradualness. And uh, so right now, we can take refuge right now in this moment. And we have Buddha, Dharma, Sangha present right now. Or we can see it as a boat which we continue to cultivate and which takes us to a place of refuge. Normally speaking, um, we don't kind of prioritize the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha in any particular order because they, are, they all work together. And that's the primary understanding that I But if I was to prioritize them, I would put Sangha first, and then Dharma, and then Buddha. I think from a human point of view, the first place we turn to for refuge is either our family or our intimate relationships or our friends. When family, intimate relationship, a friend is not available, that's when the Dharma and the Buddha become really important.
But we start with Sangha. And the first experience of Sangha we get is our family, our friends, and our intimate relationships. So a Sangha can be seen as, a Buddhist Sangha can be seen as an extension of that, or building on that human need. So in a sense, a Sangha is a, is a kind of association of friends that come together, sharing a core common values, i.e. the teachings of the Dharma. To support each other in the practice of the Dharma. So even back in the days of the historical Buddha, there were associations of craftspeople, kind of like we have, like we have unions now. People formed associations. And as we've developed over the West, we've developed the notion of a democratic association of friends, forms the Sangha. I mean, so that's a literal interpretation of the Sangha. What we form are Zen as a Sangha with a constitution. And when you think about it, really, there's no really, there's no Dharma and no Buddha without a Sangha and vice versa. The Sangha creates the teacher as much as the teacher creates the Sangha or teachers. When we take refuge in the three treasures, we also asked during the Jukai ceremony to maintain them. So this also points to another important aspect about the Sangha, that is tradition. Our tradition dates back some you know, 2,500 years. Each generation makes the tradition anew according to conditions and circumstances. Times change, the way we teach change, the way we do sangha changes. We're doing it on Zoom this morning. But we recognize and acknowledge that we do belong to a tradition. So part of the importance of Sangha is maintaining that tradition. So that's the, one of the reasons why it's important that the Sangha is autonomous from the teacher. Because it's the, it's the Sangha that maintains the tradition. Teachers can retire and eventually teachers will die. Hopefully the Sangha continues. Sangha members will die, but other hopefully Sangha members will replace them. Maybe eventually it will all die out, we don't know. This experiment with lay teaching, with being Buddhist in our everyday lives is a very relatively new thing. In the past, it was maintained by monasteries. 
it's yet to see yet to see whether or not Buddhism can survive without a monastery. So, but even in those days, the monasteries were there to, in a sense, people could take refuge in a monastery and receive some hospitality. Or one could live in a monastery, and it was it was not an easy life. One would have to work very hard. So as Buddhism migrated into China, monasteries developed, whereby the monks began to grow their own food, and they were no longer needed necessarily to beg. Begging became more of a ritual, whereas a lot of the monasteries were self-sufficient in terms of their food production. Right from the start, the notion of coming together as a sangha was to support practice to enable people to be free from laboring all day in order to sit in meditation or to have the freedom like we do today to sit and meditate and discuss the Dharma. This is a, a privilege. Uh, in many cult countries today, Many thousands and millions of people today just wouldn't have the time to be able to sit around meditating and discussing the Dharma. Which goes back to my original point that um, there's a certain degree of, of comfort that is required in order to practice Buddhism in the first place. So Buddhism is not about asceticism. As we know, the, the, the historical Buddha went through that stage and left that and returned to the middle way, you know, being kind to oneself, giving oneself enough food, etc., and catering for our needs. The other thing I think that's important about Sangha is it's the place in which hopefully we can learn to overcome our fear of strangers. Even middle-class educated people like ourselves experience fear of strangers. And we experience social anxiety. And many of us have been hurt in a social context, whether it's been in an intimate relationship or whether in a group situation, perhaps starting school or in our families and so on so coming together to have conversations with each other is an important practice in itself where we're learning to create a safe context for this kind of sharing to take place And inevitably, as in psychotherapy, it can also happen in a sangha that uh, there will be sometimes uh, ruptures or disruptions in relationships that need to be mended as best we can. Sometimes they can be mended and sometimes they can't be. But we're all human and we're all imperfect in that way. But we, we aspire to practice creating safety and respect in our conversations. So that's another important part of the same. And finally, of course, 
as we've all experienced, sometimes marriages or intimate relationships don't last. Sometimes we just get disconnected from family. And sometimes we get disconnected from friends. Hopefully in creating or co-creating Sangha, because Sangha is a co-creation. We co-create the possibility of connection that can last a lifetime. So that's another important part of taking refuge in the Sangha. Taking refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma has a lot of interpretations as to the meaning of Dharma. I'm just going to keep it simple. So Dharma refers to both the literal teachings of uh, the original Buddha and all the various history of teachings since that time. But it also refers to reality. And um, so when we take refuge in the Dharma, um, we are taking refuge in our ability to practice Zazen and to study the teachings and to learn from the teachings. Yeah. But through our Zazen practice, we're also learning to take refuge in reality. And as you know, most of you now are quite familiar with the four practice principles. So when we talk about taking refuge in reality, you all know we're talking about taking refuge in being just this moment. Simply being and being present to whatever is arising in this moment. This moment is it. You know, you're all familiar with it, the concepts now of no gain, no lack, nothing missing. This moment is complete. Reality is always complete. It's impersonal. In a sense, reality really, really doesn't care about our feelings. It really doesn't care about whether we're suffering or not. Reality is just reality. But if we can enter the gateless gate, then we just relax into this moment and be this moment. One of Joko Beck's uh, chapters from her first book which I've always really liked, which really stood out for me when I was first studying her. The chapter's called What Practice Is. And this particular quote really stood out for me many, many, many years ago, and it still does now. We begin to learn that there is only one thing in life we can rely on. What is the one thing in life we can rely on? We might say, I rely on my mate. 
We may love our husbands and wives, but we can't ever completely rely on them because another person like ourselves is always to some extent unreliable. There is no person on earth whom we can completely rely on. Though we can certainly love others and enjoy them, what then can we rely on? If it's not a person, what is it? What can we rely on in life? I asked somebody once and she said, myself. Can you rely on yourself? Self-reliance is nice, but is inevitably limited. There is one thing in life that you can always rely on life being as it is life is always going to be the way it is trust in things being as they are is the secret of life if we can be with reality as it is in other words when there is an absence of resistance and we take refuge in justice we are free of suffering even if we're in the midst of a heartbroken ending of a relationship or we've just lost someone we love, we just feel the feeling. Suffering stems from desire, resistance to life being the way it is. In other words, we want the good stuff to continue or we want the bad stuff to go away. That's suffering. When we take refuge in the Dharma, we take refuge in life as it is. And also, as we say in our practice principles, life is the great teacher or the only teacher. Life is teaching us all the time about impermanence and interdependence. And if we listen deeply enough, life will teach us how to be in this moment. We enter into the not knowing mind, the unconditioned mind. It may even be possible to be free from our biologically based survival instincts of fear when we enter into this place. Not always, but possible that we can actually even be free of flight, fight and freeze and so on. This is the conditioned reality that we all live in, our biologically conditioned reality, our culturally conditioned reality, our personal history of our own history of relationships. This is all our conditioned reality, which is always part of and inseparable from the boundlessness of reality or the unconditioned reality. 
or what is sometimes referred to in Buddhism as the unborn life. Which takes me into taking refuge in Buddha. So refuge is not self-reliance as such, and it's not even other reliance. And it's not a higher power reliance, neither. So Buddha is, you know, short for Buddhai, Buddha, the awakened one, the awakened mind, the awakening mind, the one who is awake. The reason why I said Sangha first and then Dharma second and then Buddha third is that really Sangha is creating and preparing the ground for us to experience the Buddha mind. And the Buddha mind is so simple that we miss it often, we don't recognize it. And also, it's sometimes hard to see it because we get caught in our fixations and our reactions when we're caught in suffering, when we're caught in the self-centered dream. In other words, when we're caught in not accepting the reality of things as they are, for whatever reason, we lose it. We don't recognize it. So in a sense, reality itself sometimes may be called Buddha nature. Reality itself is perfect just as it is. You can't improve upon it. But the Buddha's pointing to our experiential realization of that. And our practice is the experiential realization that everything is complete. Everything is okay, just as it is right now. And when we respond from that place, we're much less likely to do any harm. We're much more likely to respond compassionately in an appropriate way, as opposed to when we get caught up and taken away by some requirement or some reaction for things to be different than they are, then we're much more likely to come from a dualistic place and separate ourselves from others. So Buddha is pointing to the non-dualistic experience of reality, of being non-separate from reality whatever this moment is. And again, it's really hard to put this into words and I don't want, and it's very, very important not to create it into a thing that we can hold on to. So Buddha mind is not a thing. It's not something that we can see or feel or touch even. It's, it's the kind of the source or the context for all of this. And it's the experiential realization of that in the moment. So because it's a moment by moment thing, then we can actually sometimes get disconnected from it and we lose it. So that, that's what brings us back to the importance of Sangha and practice, being with reality. creating the conditions for us to be free of all conditions and to experience Buddha mind here and now. 
and the freedom that comes with that. The freedom which comes from having no need right now in this moment to be anything other than just this moment, being totally complete right now. That's the nirvana mind. It's no different from samsara. Samsara is just the resistance to what it is. Okay, so that's just a, a few words on Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. It's a beautiful way to hold Buddhism in your mind in a very easy way. And um, I would now, uh, it's something we could talk about for a lifetime as well. It's utterly simple. And it's something that we'll continue to learn about for the rest of our lives. So I'll now open up for discussion.